players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Oko, Ogo, Dreadhorde Arcanist and Occam's Astrolabe. Battling head to head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common. To uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by the minds behind Bashan Raw on YouTube, Thurban University, and TheEpicStorm.com. Hello, and welcome to episode 40 of the Eternal Glory podcast, The Cost of Selection. I'm Phil Gallagher, joined by Bryant Cook and Brian Kowal. How are you all doing tonight? I'm doing pretty good, and realizing that this is episode 40, something else important to me turned 40 this week, and it's Calvin Hodges. If you know him, he's the the vendor at Blackmagic Gaming. He's at every GP, every Star City. He is the fucking dude, and uh, happy 40th birthday, Calvin. All right, Brian, I guess since you're talking, we'll we'll start with you. What's going on in your life? Well, my COVID, uh, COVID-cation is over. Uh, Corona-cation, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it all jokes aside, um, I've, I've been summoned back to work. Uh, we were told that we'd get two weeks from the point where my county was no longer in a severe rate of spread. My county is still in a severe rate of spread, but Pennsylvania, the governor and our uh, doctor general, whatever that position is actually called, it's not doctor general, uh, uh, Tom Wolf and uh, Rachel Levine, they decided that elementary schools and particularly impacted populations like special ed, which is what I work in, should be back in school. Like basically the uh, the damage done by those populations missing that much school is worse than the risk of covid that according to some calculation they've done and because the rules changed we didn't get the two-week warning we were told on friday be back to work wednesday morning it's currently tuesday night so i'm waking up at uh 5 15 for the first time in two months tomorrow morning so uh i'm yep super stoked for that the good news is uh Teachers are in vaccine round 1B, at least in Pennsylvania. I don't know if these are national waves or just states around them, but 1B is teachers, and I figured I'd be in the teacher range, but medical clinicians are 1A, and apparently my job is classified as a 1A job because uh, behavior support is managed by the Board of Medicine in Pennsylvania. So as a, a behavior analyst, I, I'm in the first wave. With, so uh, my, my girlfriend, who I live with and is a teacher, she's in wave B. And But I've already gotten an email that's like, you can get this, confirm that you want it. And I did that. So information to be determined. But uh, it looks like I'm getting vaccinated sooner than later. Yeah. On that note, I, I am in 1B in my state, North Carolina. And I got my first dose on Sunday, which is super cool. So... You know, come the end of the month, I'll get my second dose of it and, you know, likely never get COVID. 
when do we think that web designers will uh, get their COVID shots? Uh, 2022, 2023, somewhere in that range? Uh, you, you guys can live in your houses and work there just fine. You don't need to return to society. Uh, you're good. <laughs> I'll take yours also. For our listeners out there, there's a lot of really bad information about vaccines running around. Don't get your information on vaccines from people like us, but please do your research and figure out whether or not it's a good idea for you to uh, to get a vaccine rather than listen to someone in a Facebook group tell you what you should do. Just, uh, that's my way of plugging the vaccine without the endorsement coming from me directly. <laughs> yeah, my our, our CEO of our company, uh, she has arranged a bunch of vaccine information support groups that like you can show up if you have questions or concerns about what a vaccine means for you which is great but right above that email was the email offering me the vaccine and i basically instantly replied and said slam it in my veins so (laughs) like quite literally (laughs) and uh so uh, i'm in um working in autism support especially uh, i get all sorts of anti-vax nonsense coming to my doorstep that i have to navigate and uh the the those anti-vaxxer nonsense maniacs are also paying the uh tuition for the kids to be there so i have to navigate it much more gently than i want to and but this is different i will easily lead by example i have all my other vaccines i'm not gonna stop now and i don't have autism because they're not related as someone who is immunocompromised and who has essentially been hiding in the house for the last year, the thought that I might be able to actually go out and do something and not be super afraid is such a relief. Yeah, I can't even imagine how you feel because I have felt like fear to leave the house this whole time and I'm not immunocompromised. Like I'm just a normal person, like normal healthy age. Like I would for sure, just easily survive COVID. Like I, I'm, I'm in that range, but I also don't want it. And uh, one of my closest friends got it. Uh, she's been in lockdown this whole time too. Uh, she has a roommate and a boyfriend, and between and like goes grocery shopping. And be like those three leaks resulted in all three of them getting COVID. We don't know who got it first, but like, uh, it, it's tough to lock down the, the ship. Uh, if I didn't live with my girlfriend, I would probably have to have chosen to not see her or get COVID. Uh, like, I, so it, it is has been tough. I'm excited to be vaccinated and hopefully that's a step in the right direction. However, now we're learning that Britain and it's creeped over to France are being ravaged by a new strain of COVID. So let's let's see where that goes. Can't even wait. Are we going to talk about COVID for two hours tonight? <laughs> no. Okay. All right. Uh, then I will talk about, uh, uh, in brighter news, which is also grim and dangerous, uh, I'm watching Raised by Wolves, which is a show on HBO Max. It's about, uh, it, it's directed by Ridley Scott. It's like a sci-fi with that like has a little toe in horror, but it's mostly sci-fi. And uh, it's uh, these these two androids, uh get jettisoned into space with human embryos in a spaceship and they're they're expected to incubate and raise these embryos and create a new human society because earth was destroyed by religious wars 
And these robots are to raise these human embryos as atheists to cure the biggest problem in human society, which is religion, which led to the death of Earth. And like uh, 12 years after they arrive or something, a ship full of religious zealots arrives at the same planet with the same plan to fix all the problems of Earth, which is to have no atheists. And uh, it's sort of this like (laughs) literally science versus God open warfare uh with these two uh cult-like mini societies and it's really good i'm i'm only like five or six episodes in uh, but i'm really into it so far on my end i am really unsure about like what the rest of my school year looks like now like i i had been immunocom like i am immunocompromised so i was convinced i would be working from home from the rest of the year and that was the accommodation but like now I'm getting vaccinated, so I think it takes two weeks after your second dose for you to have immunity, but that means, like, mid-February, I could potentially be going back into work again. So, like, I have no idea what, like, my next couple of months looks like. And that's not bad, but it's also kind of stressful, because it's like, well... When do I know what this looks like? We're opening up a new school building. Are we bringing more of the students back? What's the governor going to say? Are things going to change once we get a new president? Like, I have so many questions that I don't have answers to right now. Well, I think one of those questions will be answered in roughly eight days, right? (laughs) Six days? Is that all? I I don't know anymore. I don't think I have the oomph to do coronavirus followed by, like, the potential downfall of American democracy in the same episode. So, like, let's let that one go. Bryant, what are you doing? <laughs> Good call. Well, uh, going back to the health thing, uh, this was probably three months ago, but I had, uh, I'll call it a visual panic attack. I was working on my computer and my peripherals got really black and all of a sudden I couldn't focus. And it lasted for about 40 minutes and I sort of freaked out. And, you know, like I got a drink of water, took some Advil and like half an hour later, I laid down for a little bit. It was gone. It happened again the next day and the day after that and then didn't happen for a month. And I was telling a coworker about it. They're like, you need to go to the doctor. I was like, what? It hasn't happened. They're like, go to the doctor. Like, I will tell your boss. Like, we need your eyes, your web designer. And I was like, eh. And then my boss is like, you should probably go to the doctor. You have health care. Just go. So I haven't been to the doctor, honestly, in years like five or six years. I just go, I, I don't know. I don't go to the doctor. So I was like nervous for like them drawing my blood and like, I don't know. I'm a 31 year old guy. I haven't been to the doctor since like my parents' healthcare ran out because you know, that's what happens at when you turn 26. And I was like, Oh, they're going to like find out that I have diabetes or cancer or something. And my life's just going to be over. And I was like really nervous about it. And they're just like, now nah, you're healthy as a horse. Like you'll be fine. Also like you don't have coronavirus. And I just like none of those things is what I thought was going to be told to me. Yeah, I've definitely learned like I'm, I'm like you. I don't go to the doctor unless I'm like on the verge of death. Uh, and my girlfriend is the type of person who's like, oh, uh, my my right shoulder is a little sore. I'm going to book a chiropractic appointment immediately. Or like uh, I woke up with a little bit of a sniffle. I'll see if I can get into our PCP. I'm just like, what is wrong with you? Chill out. You're <laughs> fine. But uh, like I'm, I'm the type of person who like, <laughs> I, I could be like, you know, bleeding out of every orifice and just like, I think it'll go away. Just let me sleep it off. Uh, but it, like, 
I've been going more recently because my girlfriend is like talking to me. I've never actually bled from every orifice. That was just an absurd example. Nobody fear for my my bloody orifices. <laughs> uh, they they're fine. <laughs> but I have learned that the number of times where you go in and you're like, uh, yeah, so my vision just went blurry. Like I went blind for an hour and I had to like sleep it off. And it happened three days in a row. It hasn't happened since. And doctors are like, oh, that's weird. Yep, that's you exactly look what to me. Yeah, it, it 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 it's such a pain in the ass. And like the alternative to that is like I have headaches all the time. Uh, like I they've never been diagnosed as migraines. I don't think they necessarily are migraines, but like I get like pretty regular headaches. And I told my PCP that like two and a half years ago, and he was like, "Okay, I'll set you up for a CAT scan." And I was like, "Oh, that sounds cool. Like let's just make sure there's no tumorous lumps up in there. Like whatever." And then, uh. His his office checked that it's covered by my insurance. Insurance signed off on it. I booked the appointment. I show up there like three weeks later and they're like, okay, that'll be $325 today. And I'm like, wait, insurance approved it. They're like, yeah, they approved you to pay the copays and deductibles to get it done. And I'm like, I don't have $325 today. I'm not even sure if this is medically necessary. I'm just going to leave. <laughs> and like, uh, for our international listeners, I know there are a number of you. That's what American healthcare is like. So, <laughs> yep. It, enjoy your your socialized medicine because that's evil here. So, uh, other than medical stuff, I watched all two, or I watched both seasons of Titans, like the Teen Titans, but like they're it's edgy now because it's on HBO Max. It was so corny and campy, but I loved it. Like, yes. I was just so into it. And then I found out that the like side characters in like a random episode of season one got their own show called Doom Patrol. And I'm not watching that. I'm midway through season two and it's even worse. But I, I like I might love it twice as much just because I don't know anything about it. Like I've read a bunch of the Titan stuff as a kid and like I know a lot of it already, but I don't nothing about Doom Patrol. So I'm like, oh, what happens to this robot? I got to find out. Yeah. And uh, going back to my first point about like blurred vision or whatever, uh, what the doctor ultimately told me was I need to get more sleep because on average, I don't sleep enough at night. Well, last night I was up until 3 a.m. working on the epicsworm.com. I found out that I know my mobile navigation was no longer working and I was like, I will solve this. And after like I got to three, I'm like, I should really get some sleep like five hours probably isn't enough for tomorrow. And then I worked over my lunch break and then a little bit after work. And solved the issue just before we went live. So it's fixed now, but it's had me going crazy for eight hours. <laughs> so if Bryant goes blind and passes out during our recording tonight, that's why. We're just going to continue on without you if that happens, though. It might actually be a better episode. Yeah, it could be. Uh, do you have a life alert bracelet to get help <laughs> if you if you do pass out? I do wear an oh, Apple I Watch. And I've been... I can't get up. I've been told that the Apple Watch actually records a bunch of that stuff. Uh, my boss's wife had uh, a heart attack and it like alerted people. Neat. Oh, wow. That's cool. I, I don't think my Fitbit does that. I think I could just like turn it on to heart rate display mode. It would say like 380, <laughs> but it wouldn't actually tell anyone. <laughs> or five. Like what direction does a heart attack go in? Does your heart rate go up or down? I don't even know. Couldn't tell you. Me neither. But uh, that's my life update. And uh, we're through that stuff at 15 minutes. Congratulations, guys. Not bad. All right. 
for donations, uh, thank you once again to Henrik Korkutz for donating to the podcast. You help keep uh, Phil Blackman at Force of Will happy and... Uh... Force of Phil. Force of Phil. I knew that. <laughs> Look, man, yeah. it's been a long day. <laughs> also, Henrik, you're the real MVP. Every episode, just supporting us, we love you. Thank you. Henrik also messaged me on Facebook once to give me some help with Breath of the Wild when I back when I was playing that for like 40 hours a week and I mentioned it on the episode that I was worried about like beating Ganon because then the game would be over and he messaged me and he's like don't worry there's plenty to do after you beat Ganon like don't let that slow you down and it's like oh sweet thanks so he's he's the goat all right um as far as feedback goes uh we highlighted one very long comment and then trimmed it down into two smaller sub questions. Uh, so both of these come from Bone Clock Harmony on Reddit. If we remove Dreadhorde Arcanist, isn't that only hurting one of the dominant decks? Is the argument that combo could better police Snowco with Dreadhorde Arcanist gone? So uh, to flesh out this point a little bit, what what he means? Uh, this was in the longer comment, but we cut it down. Uh, is that uh, in his estimation, or their estimation, sorry, in their estimation, uh, the problem decks are Rug Delver and Snowco, and that Dreadhorde Arcanist is only in one of those two decks when Oka's in both of them. And that's how we ended up here. So uh, continue, Phil. All right. Well, to start things off, Dreadhorde Arcanist is in Snow decks as well, sometimes. Like, there are very new... Well, maybe not new. There are different builds of snow emerging that take the builds in different directions. Sometimes with Arcanist, sometimes with Hullbreacher Days Undoing. That deck is not set in stone, and sometimes it picks up that card, and it's great there. There's also uh, Dreadhorde Infect now, uh, which has multiple trophies to its name from Fenris Cloud. And finally, that card's doing what it's supposed to do, though. That card was designed for pump spells. We should let that version exist. <laughs> yeah, you you can decide whether or not it's a it's a masterpiece or an abomination. Uh, that one's to the listeners. And then there's also things like it just getting rammed into decks like Doomsday and it just being insane there as like something that lets you grind through all of your opponent's various counter spells and forces them to leave removal spells in their deck that otherwise are quite bad. Yeah, the vintage uh, Underworld Breach shell is mostly just a Xerox deck, and then it has this tight little combo package that adding Dreadhorde Arcanus to Legacy Doomsday kind of simulates that game plan of I have to deal with this Arcanus, they're going to draw cards, they're going to duress me, they're going to have counterspell backup, and they're threatening a, a combo kill at any point. And it's just, it stretches what you have to do against them pretty badly. And yeah, like, also just like, let's let's look at Pokepile. Like, Poke, Pokemoki has been fighting for the top of the leaderboard, uh, challenged only by Negator77. And it, it was like a late entry too. Like Pokemoki was running for a long time and Negator was just like, you know what, I'm going to be the trophy leader again. But so Pokemoki, that's been a Dreadhorde Arcanist Uro Oko deck the whole time. Like it, It's not just like Rug Delver and it, it gets called Pokepile, but that deck is mostly just like Rug Snoko. So uh, it, it's not that... DHA is only in one deck at all. 
you guys failed to mention the new uh and I, I say new but it's the jeskai mentor deck it's running you know dreadhorde arcanist with one of the best creatures ever printed monastery mentor so like that deck plays like snow but it also has like i don't want to say a tempo aspect but it has dreadhorde and it's real good that deck plays like jund <laughs> yeah uh well I don't know if that deck is real good, uh, but it is certainly a deck you can play. Uh, I did record with that. Uh, that's scheduled to release uh, probably a couple days after this episode drops on my channel. But uh, I-, I will say that among Mentor decks, I don't think that's a shell that maximizes Mentor. But that shell wouldn't exist at all if Dreadhorde Arcanist wasn't a card. Yep. Like, the idea of curving like Ponder DHA Mentor on 1-2-3... Like, there's nothing else in Legacy that challenges your removals, your interaction, as hard on turn two to make way for the turn three mentor, as uh, Arcanus does. So I want to go back and nitpick something. The two of you were discussing Doomsday with Dreadhorde. I was talking about this with some other combo aficionados recently, and that is, there's a new Doomsday list that's appeared. I believe that the primary person behind it is uh, the famous uh, Oops All Spells expert, Jax who decided to play four personal tutor and maximize Street Wraith. And now the deck is just ultra fast. It's very consistent. Turn two is you usually on turn two with backup. The deck's just very good. And it's the, the opposite strategy of these Dreadhorde Doomsday lists because the Doomsday decks have gotten a lot slower over the last couple of months. They've been adding in Baleful Strix and then they were playing like two, pre- uh, two Predict and more Cantrips. And honestly, if you go back and look at it, it's the same thing that happened with Breach. Breach was designed by combo players, and then all of the Miracles players switched to Breach, and they added in a bunch of like predicts and stuff, and the deck became slower. For better or for worse, I don't know if it was like the right decision, but the Breach shell was so strong that it just didn't matter what filler cards you put in because they were going to win anyway. I don't think Doomsday is quite that good. Um, I do think that there is a real cost to like playing Dreadhorde in your deck that had zero targets for lightning bolt before and now they're just like well i guess i'm gonna bolt this dread horde i was it was a dead card previously well the original build of dread horde arcanist doomsday the the arcanists were in the sideboard yes predicts uh, like, were made. It, it was the it was it's the juke like they like and i i just recorded a league yesterday with a a grixis luxury deck and i played against doomsday and in the sideboard it was like all right i cut all my removal or do I? Like, what level is this opponent on? And I decided to just commit to beating regular spell-based Doomsday and had basically no removal in the deck. And if I chose wrong, I lose. Or if I, But if I hedge one way or the other, then I'm soft against both builds. So it, it's just like a thing. Uh, like when uh, Splinter Twin back in Modern added Tarmogoyf, uh, that, that's basically the same kind of thing where like, uh, your opponent boards in to beat this combo and they bring in like combust and uh rending volley and all of this mess and then you're just like tarmogoyf uh, and it's the same kind of thing we've seen it in a lot of combo decks I- i'm sure i don't need to educate the epic storm <laughs> master brian cook about the history of combo decks but uh, we've seen this a lot where uh control decks do it too you just pivot into some other animal that wins the game instead of the combo or your your main deck plan i was just going to mention that like the first effective experience that i can honestly think of and i say effective because it's been done for years but this is the first deck to do it well in my opinion was miracles 
like boarding into mentors and just crashing face and like your opponent just had like the fear in them of like am i really supposed to side out swords what if mentor comes in because mentor takes over a game very quickly yeah i still leave in one or two supreme verdicts even if i cut most of my plows and control mirrors just for out of respect for what if like they could do anything i, I don't know like so uh, yeah the dreadhorde arcanist is a powerful enough card that it can get shoved into most shells and make it and still be playable like i don't know if it's good or bad like i haven't tested all of these like dreadhorde arcanist infect decks like whatever but uh the fact that you can just shove this random card into a deck add a color to a deck for this random card no less and it's still playable and possibly even good is a sign of how high the bar is on that one so there's a part two to this question uh i guess i'll read it couldn't you just as e- easily argue that with Okogon, Chalice decks could now help police Dreadhorde Arcanist? Uh, to help me, this argument has the added benefit of, quote, unlocking a bunch of decks that Oko really oppresses, which also leads into the next point. So my my challenge there would be, it, are Chalice decks actually good against Dreadhorde Arcanist decks? And I think that is a real question, because conceptually you would go and think, yes, Chalice of the Void is great against them because it goes and shuts off all of the cantrips coming back from the graveyard. While that's true, all of those decks are also like six or seven Force of Will decks that also play some other sort of interaction. And if it's not Oko, they, they might go to back to something like Brazen Borrower. Or Uro. Like if Oko leaves, I'm telling you right now, Uro will be just slotted right into these decks. Uh, Daniel Goshel top aided the Legacy Showcase with Uro's. Like, it's not some, like, crazy stretch of the imagination. Yeah, I mean, Uro is obviously a very different card uh, outside of its mana cost to Oko, uh, and the the effect on the format is totally different. But, but yeah, like, those... If, if you don't have to worry about uh, Oko anymore, the Dreadhorde Arcanist decks are just going to pile up on Brazen Borrowers and Abrades and, like, things that line up well against the things that line up well against them. And, like, the... I think the argument itself of like, this kind of sounds to me like, sure, Dreadhorde Arcanist is a problem, but with Oko gone, we can answer it with Chalice. Or we could skip the middleman and just remove Dreadhorde Arcanist. Like, that's sort of what this lands on for me. Also, the prison side of Red Prison sucks right now. It's maybe the worst that it's ever been. And that's why so many of the Red Prison builds are playing things like Fireflux Squad and P&K and Anji's Ravager that, like, haven't seen too much play in, like, the year preceding it. And it's just because if you want to be playing those decks, just get people dead. Stop trying to answer their stuff. Stop trying to lock them out because it's not working. I'm reading Fireflux Squad for the first time right now, (laughs) live on... As we're recording. Do you want to? Well, Phil, I th- I think that's like part of what you're describing is like you used to be able to lock people out. You could pick a point of attack with a prison deck or discard spells and then focus on that. Everything has been pushed so far the last couple of years where that's just really difficult to do. Like you're supposed to like deny your opponent mana, but then there's Arkham's Astrolabe. Well, maybe you Trinisphere them. There's Oko. Uh, Karn dies to an elk. Like, there's all these things, they're, they're, like, magic has just become more snowball and there's no one real culprit, it's a bunch of different things now. 
this is we're actually going to hit this pretty hard in our actual topic tonight. So let's let's move through the uh, the feedback question because this whole uh, how good cards are is a big part of our our real topic. Yeah. All right. So let's do some quick MTG updates and then we'll kind of hop into the real content. So on my end, YouTube is booming. I'm so sad that I ignored YouTube as like a platform for so long. I had my first video hit 5k views uh, earlier this week. My dead guy ale hit 5k and my sushi loam video is on track to beat it. Uh, I think it's at, you know, two or 3000 views in 48 hours or something like that. It's going wild. Uh, sushi loam refers to uh, Urborg and spreading algae, which lets you uh, essentially destroy lands repeatedly for one mana. And people are just, like, eating it up. People love land destruction all the time. Well, when you're watching it or doing it, being on the other side of it is uh, sometimes brutal. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, that's, like, one of the most hated mechanics in the history of Magic. Like, the early days of just, like, Birds of Paradise into Stone Rain on the play. It was just, like, fuck, <laughs> fuck, fuck. <laughs> Like those decks that, like Land War Elves, Birds of Paradise, Four Stone Rain, Four Pillage, and then it, it got to a point where uh, Watsi actually told us, like, uh, land destruction will not cost less than four anymore. Like, straight up land destruction anyway. Like, there's some, like, cleansing fire. Wildfire. Is that what the card is called? I know, because I played that card in Legacy uh, last week. Not, not, not. Not Wildfire. The, uh, the two mana destroy target. Yeah, that's, that's cleansing wildfire. Oh, cleansing wildfire. All right. I, I thought we jumped straight to actual no, wildfire. No, 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 no. Like, like deal four, destroy eight lands. <laughs> Which is funny because I actually am going to talk about wildfire a little bit in our show notes later on. I have it written down. All right. It's weird that that happened. I own a Japanese foil wildfire. Oh, very nice. Uh, why? Uh, did you used to wish for that in the Epic Storm? No, Aww. no, no. I have a casual deck for when I see two of my friends once a year. Granted, it didn't happen this year, but uh, it's in that. Not bad. Is the whole deck Japanese foil? Obviously. <laughs> uh, I appreciate the uh, dedication to the Japanese foil lifestyle for this uh, casual deck you have that you play against two friends once a year. Like, very nice. What else is going on? Uh, oh, wait, Phil, you're still talking. Uh, tell us about aggro taxes. All right. Um, so... I just want, I'll mention this now because it's kind of the lead in to why I wanted to do this episode topic, but I, I did a crazy person thing and I ran a death and taxes league where I dropped flicker wisp and recruiter of the guard from the deck and just killed people with Sarah Avengers and Luminarch aspirants. And it was just like a crazy league and it was super cool. Um, and that video is up on YouTube, the click baitingly called like Flicker Wisp is fired or something like that. Um, and it was some like something that Bryant very regularly says is that if your deck isn't working, you should maybe think if there's anything you can do to rebuild it or retool it and try something new. And Death and Taxes has very consistently been putting up numbers in like the 30% range for win rates for challenges. And so I was like, well, fuck it. Let's let's get weird and try something new. Very proud of you, Phil. You mean trying something other than saying legacy sucks on social media? I thought that was how we handle when our deck is bad in the metagame. <laughs> We're all out of ideas. 
What do we do? All right, Brian, what's going on? Well, I am very glad the Holiday Cube will be leaving Magic Online. I've burned so many playpoints forcing Storm the last two weeks, and it's been a nice little mini vacation from Legacy. Uh, not, I mean, I love Legacy, but, you know, just something different is nice. But I feel like I'm missing out on all of these people playing Spreading Algae. Like, I should hop back into Lees and just start farming if people are going to be playing this ridiculous deck. I have made so many people play Dead Guy Ale. Yeah, like, those are also free wins. What have I been doing? <laughs> I I lost to Dead Guy Ale in a video. Uh, I think the one that went live yesterday, my, my Shark Still update, like, uh, I... I don't know if they, my opponent sequenced like a god or just drew their cards in the right order, but it was like, like every turn it was like, okay, I'm set up against Dark Confidant, I'm set up against him to Tarak, I'm set up against this, 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 and they're like, Tide Hollow Sculler, which is the thing that dodges both like <laughs> Flusterstorm and Swords to Plowshares, I'm just like, oh no. And then that like, broke, collapsed my house of cards until they could like, string their threats, so I was actually really impressed at how that deck performed. Nice, nice. Well, since everyone else is doing it, uh, I top aided a vintage challenge with Underworld Outcome. We love Breach. We love Paradoxical Outcome. Why not combine them? I've actually uploaded a bunch of that content to the YouTube channel over the last few weeks. So if you're interested in a former Legacy Hated card, go check those out. And uh, my last real MTG update is I've been so busy recently, and I'm sure you guys have been too with all the content creation, that I'm losing track of things on my to-do list like it's just getting longer and longer because i'm trying to make more and more content and then i remembered the other day that i stopped reading the boys because i needed to focus more on testing for the pro tour i'm like oh great i have to add that back onto my list too i still have three more books to read so i I just feel like i'm falling behind with everything due to creating more content for everyone same (laughs) uh do i need to remind you guys that uh balance is important and the uh the content game uh people will forgive you if you take a night off to read some comics or snuggle with your girlfriend uh also things like reading the comics are totally optional like if it's stressing you out to like put read the comics back on your to-do list like evaluate reevaluate find some zen like find a place where that's okay yeah I i was proud of myself last night i was like man i have time to record a video And I went, no. And I just, like, sat on the couch instead. And it was everything that I actually wanted. I did that today, uh, actually. Um, I have, since I learned on Friday night that I'm going back to work tomorrow, uh, I recorded two videos a day on Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. And it's now Tuesday. Uh, It's uh, Tuesday the 12th, and my YouTube videos are scheduled through... uh, tuesday the 26th i'm like full two weeks out at this point i'm just cranking them so i I have a running start but uh today i totally had a window where i could have recorded a league and just watched two episodes of raised by wolves instead and it felt good all right brian top top us off here what's what's going on with you i i know you did something kind of cool via twitter yeah so uh the legend negator 77 tom hep uh nicest and most powerful legacy wizard that there is uh he has he's i think he's just under 55 legacy trophies this season i think he had 53 two days ago uh and he wanted to share the wealth and uh throw some of his uh trophy money at legacy content creators 
And I was one of the lucky beneficiaries. And basically, he bought a donation deckless league and said, instead of me donating a deck to you, uh, do something cool with this money. And uh, what I did was a brew contest where I gave people like a week and a half, two weeks to submit lists. And then I picked my favorite four lists. And then I posted those four lists and said, uh, had the community vote on what I was actually going to play. And the winner, to my absolute delight, was Aminatu Yorian Miracles. Uh, that's Aminatu the Fate Shifter, the uh, the commander card. It's a planeswalker that can be your commander. I'm not going to read all the text. Because, There's a lot of uh, it. That will, yes, but uh, the it's an Esper Miracles deck that's also a Yorian deck that uh, just plays four Aminatu the Fate Shifter in it, and that league was a lot of fun. And uh, I realized after I posted the the voting that I was going to play that deck no matter what. And I had already decided that if it didn't win, I was going to play it. And if it did win, I would play the runner-up. So I also played the runner-up, Grix's Otterbox, which is the Lutri deck I was talking about. That is what I voted for. Uh, But I, not to like bring down your hyping of this Miracles deck, but people already tried that when that Planeswalker came out and they're like, oh, this isn't good. Uh, Next Planeswalker, please. So I was like, no, I'm not going to vote for that. I want to see this one of Grix's deck like trash face. So I will watch that video. People love the Tainted Pact style decks where it's like, okay, here I am talking through my lines and now I have a tutor. Oh, no. <laughs> so the the this really cool thing about uh, the Grix's Otterbox list, a small side tangent here. Um, it's not a Lutri deck in the main deck. It boards into being a Lutri deck. Like, isn't that crazy? I, I thought it was a, a like the deck list uploaded wrong when I posted the list and realized Lutri was in the main. But the main deck plays for Force of Will because you can't just be that soft against combo in today's legacy, especially if you're playing leagues. And you board into being a Lutri deck. It's like a free card to sideboard out along with three of your Force of Wills in the fair matchups, which I thought was really cool design space. Uh, there's a lot of modern Luris decks that like board in Blood Moons and they stop being a Luris deck post-board, but I haven't seen a deck that starts being a companion deck post-board when it wasn't in the main deck. Well, Elves has done that before, right? Uh, elves... Like, didn't they, like, Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. They, there was an Elves... Some of their stuff. There was a... When Luris was legal in Legacy, Elves was, uh... They had Luris in the main deck with Natural Orders, and then if they board out Natural Orders in fair matchups, they could be a Luris deck as a companion. So, yes, that, that did happen before, you're right. But I, I was excited about it. Also, speaking of excited and speaking of Negator, uh, I, I recorded Deep Analysis Episode 2, the first episode was when I had uh, Ad Nauseam Tendrils versus the Epic Storm experts talking about their decks. This episode has Jarvis Yu and Tom Hep representing lands and depths. And we're talking about uh, the best way to make Merrill Age and the history of those two decks. So uh, that was that was a lot of fun to record. But holy guacamole, it is so much work to produce a webcast compared to record a Magic Online League. Like... For those of you, uh, a peek behind the scenes, a two-hour league that I post is probably two and a half to three hours of work for me. Like, I have to, you know, set up the deck list, uh, set up all my recording stuff. I have to make a thumbnail image. I have to upload it to YouTube. I do some 
minor editing to make sure like the sound levels are right and I splice all the videos together so it's just one video like probably about 40 minutes of work on top of the actual playtime uh producing and that's for a two-hour video producing one hour of deep analysis takes me about 10 hours of work at between like planning it coming up with show notes uh recording the thing and then the editing is crazy because I, I have like card images popping up every time someone says like oh and then they printed veil of summer i have veil of summer pop up on the screen and like i just i have to put all those in manually later obviously and then uh i also do my best to edit out the uh the ums and the 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 the, the you know the the like when people do that i i edit that out so we all sound smart and it doesn't <laughs> And it's not as jarring for the listener. So a lot of work goes into that. Uh, kudos to Force of Phil every week for doing that for us, because that's a lot of work. And the the biggest thing in my, my magic that's going on right now is I have a commander deck in paper again. I think I mentioned that the last episode that I recorded a commander league with uh, Matt Sperling, Eric Virgo, and Zach Allen, and it was so much fun that I just wanted to be a commander boy in real life again. And I wanted to build a Corvold commander deck since I played Corvold in Standard last summer. Like I played one Standard event where I played Jun Sacrifice and Corvold. The card was just such a delight that I wanted to build commander around it. And then I just happened to get a commander donation deck list that was Corvold. And I was like, well, this is a sign. And I have, it's safe to say, jumped straight into the deep end. Uh, I had no commander deck two weeks ago. As of today, I have 85 of 96 possible foil cards for this deck. And uh, I went straight into foil uh, and like... Most of them are, are good versions of the foils too. Um, I'm taking it a little slow on stuff, but like I've been selling MTGO tickets and getting donation deck lists and stuff, and I promise you every cent of that has gone right into this fucking commander deck. So <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, yeah, it, it, it was a fortunate time to have a lot of moto tickets to, to get rid of because this was not a cheap project and I am not taking it slow. So I'm glad that you jumped straight into foils because uh, right after COVID started, I started playing a lot of Pioneer uh, Lotus Breach at the time. And I was like, this deck's cool, but like, do I really want a Japanese foil Pioneer deck? Probably not. And then I played it a couple of times. And I was like, holy shit, I can't believe I bought this deck non-foil. Uh, so then I ended up like slowly making a Japanese foil. And now I just have like these cards in my closet that I'm never going to touch ever again that no one's ever going to buy because I decided that I had to own a Japanese foil. So you definitely did the right thing, Brian. Yep. Yeah. A lot of this stuff, you buy it and it's just like, Oh, I'm going to have this. I'm going to pass this on to my children. <laughs> no one's going <laughs> to ever buy this from me. Uh, and I'm also working on uh, tracking down Alterus who make non-foil cards into foil cards. Uh, that is a thing that exists. I've seen some really nice, uh, my friend, Nicholas Dijon, uh, Vintage Expert has uh, a foil Tolarian Academy that's beautiful. Uh, Cyrus has a foil Reign of Filth that's beautiful. Like th There's Alterus out there that just peel up the foil layer from cards and reattach it onto different cards. And I'm pretty sure I need to get my Dockside Extortionist foil. And then also 
my set of Allosaurus Shepherds because the rest of my elf deck is foil. So I'm looking to foil out some high-end shit. I guess I didn't realize that Jumpstart doesn't come foil. It does not. That's a tragedy. It really is. Is it only English? That I don't know the answer to, but I, I know it's not foil. I always dislike that about early Commander products, how they were always English, always non-foil, because that's not what Commander's about, but I don't know. Yeah, but then, like, on the other hand, uh, you have problems like Corvold, the card Corvold, or, uh, like, that's from a Commander product. You can't open Corvold in a pack of uh, Throne of Eldraine. That's from Throne of Eldraine Commander Edition, and it only exists in foil, which was a problem in standard decks where you have... 57 non-foil cards and then your three Corvolds are just fucking Pringles in there and there's nothing you can do about it except play proxies uh that's that was the nexus of fate problem as well where like you had a bunch of blue green decks with four basic mountains in them those are my nexus of fate wasn't there some legacy fringe playable thing that was like that like was was it marchesa uh, no that's the grixis one I, I was at that event it was uh Cast uh, Dissident Mage. Yes. That's it. Yeah, Thank yeah. you. That's That was it. I was facing Anurag when the person next to us uh, got their match loss. <laughs> yeah, because Cast uh, is such a busted card that you definitely want to cut to that one in the beginning of every game. Ugh, embarrassing stuff. Um, one time I loaned a legacy deck to Harry Corvisi. Actually, I loaned him many legacy decks. Uh, he, he just plays and deals poker and lives in Vegas now, but he was uh, a grinder on the Star City circuit for a couple years. And he always played Sneak and Show, and he always borrowed the deck from me. And he always complained that my show and tells and sneak attacks were judge foils, and the rest of the deck wasn't foil. But those were just the cards I had. And the one time I was like, like it was like the fourth time, and he was like, can't wait to borrow your cheaty show and tells again. And I was like, you know what, you can borrow the deck from someone else. And he was like, okay, okay, <laughs> we're all friends here, let's settle down. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah that's what i thought and that was the end of that joke uh the time that cedric did a cartwheel on camera and hurt himself it was my cards that he was betting on uh he him he had a uh, a prop bet with patrick sullivan where uh harry corvisi resolved a turn one blood moon on the play against jund and they just like couldn't do anything and then he resolved a sneak attack he cracked with an Emrakul. The Jun player was like at four with no permanence under Blood Moon. And Cedric was like, if Harry loses his game, I'll do a cartwheel. And then Harry proceeded to lose the game. He just never drew a another creature to sneak attack. And the Jun player, they they still had red mana. They were like pyroblasting all the cantrips that would find a monster. And eventually they found Basic Forge, which cast Deathrite Shaman. And then they had mana again. And Harry lost the game and Cedric kind of hurt himself doing a cartwheel. But those were my cards that caused that. All right, so let's jump into the actual episode topic for of the day. First, I want to take like a minute here and just kind of remind everyone what 2020 legacy, 2021 legacy now, I guess, looks like. People are playing powerful, proactive game plans, and they're, they're really good. The control decks aren't sitting here dirtling anymore. They're dropping things like Mentor, Oko, Uro that threaten to take over the games quickly. And blue decks have stronger counterspell packages than ever due to the printing of Force of Negation. And you really don't have as much time to sit around as you used to. You need to be either acting or reacting or building towards a win 
in some way from pretty early on, you know? The hands where you're like, well, I don't do anything till turn three are really sus right now, to use the Among Us lingo. Get out of here, Phil. Brian's the imposter. For sure. All right. So do you all want to say anything else briefly about, like, current legacy? That's, like, obviously a gross oversimplification, but those are kind of some of the things that I want the listeners to be keeping in mind for what we're going to be talking about today. I think you hit the nail on the head, Phil. We've talked about it the last two episodes because I said the same thing literal two episodes in a row about Thoughtseize sucking for that very reason. And I mentioned it a little bit earlier, but, like, cards that are actually seeing play now are just so strong where you counter one and then your opponent slams another haymaker the next turn and then another haymaker like the control decks aren't these like big slow like i'm going to resolve my draw spell and turn nine decks anymore like that's not what today's magic is yep definitely uh i think phil and brian both hit it uh i got donation decks from separate players to play lone pox and mono black pox over the last two weeks those videos are both scheduled in the queue right now and both were bad. Oh my god. Uh, I, I'm sorry to the Leaving Legacy community. I know you all enjoy uh, making pox memes and working on pox. And uh, please, if that's your deck, carry on. Power to you. But wow. Uh, discard is not what it used to be. <laughs> that's all I'm going to say on that. To put it the way one of the pox fans who was watching my like train wreck of a league with red black pox said, when you're playing pox... Everyone suffers, including you. Yeah, especially you. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about the origin of the episode now. This comes from a very specific moment in my life where I was scrolling Twitter and I came across something and I went, what the hell are you thinking? All right. So this deck that I saw was a blue living wish pile where it essentially shoved a Living Wish package for hate bears into what was otherwise kind of a, sh a snow shell. And I saw this deck list. I, I think it was created by JTL, um, the, the primary person who has been working on the Esper Vile deck. I saw this list, and I think I even said this out loud. Was, was I was just flabbergasted. And I'm like, how the fuck can you take a turn off to cast Living Wish in this metagame? I was just, like, flummoxed. I, I, I didn't understand. And as a result of this, I went the complete opposite direction that this person did. This is the origin of me trying that D&T League, where I dropped my things that were, like, card selection and slower setup cards. This is why I tried a League dropping Recruiter the Guard and Flicker Wisp, and I just wanted to play high-impact cards right now. They hit the board, you answer them, or I start pulling ahead. And this kind of led me to, like, spend a long time thinking about tempo, the cost of card selection, and traditional deck-building knowledge of 2020-2021. So, Phil mentioned card selection. It's not always tutors. And I'd like to point this out. There's one deck... I guess there's two if you count Doomsday, but there's but Doomsday's recently cutting this card too, that plays Preordain and it's Delver because it's so good with Dreadhorde Arcanist. But more and more decks recently have been cutting Preordain because there is a cost in Legacy right now to just like sitting there doing nothing, like just casting cantrips for the sake of casting cantrips and like, well I'll get my card quality. 
Like, that's not what 2020 Legacy or 2021 Legacy is about. Like, the Jax Doomsday list that I was talking about, cut Preordain for four personal tutor. You cast it on turn one and you have Doomsday turn two. There's no, like, well, I'll find Doomsday by turn four because my deck plays the, you know, the cantrip suite. That takes up so much time. And when you see decks like Ant, for example, and I don't mean to bully on Ant all the time, it's just, like, that deck plays for preordain instead of running more tutors and when you have to spend time finding your cards that actually do things you're losing your opponent's proactive cards like dreadhorde arcanist and oko and everything else i recorded a league today and i don't remember exactly what my opponent was playing but they cast a cantrip and the immediate thing that just came out of my mouth was oh thank god now they can't play on curve haymaker this turn yeah every time my uh when I'm when I'm playing a more reactive deck, every time my opponent is like turn two ponder, I, there's a giant sigh of relief. It's like, oh good, I'm not getting the Arcanist isn't coming. And then like they they brainstorm on turn three. I'm like, oh thank God, it's not Oko. Like all of that, uh, that definitely is a real thing. I was watching a Rug Delver match last night with a couple of other people, and the person just immediately dazed a spell in turn one. And Jarvis Yu probably jumped out of his chair screaming like, now you can't play Dreadhorde on turn two, like in anger. And that's where we're at right now, where the cards you want to resolve are just so important that like dazing a random spell or letting your opponent have some like insignificant thing just like doesn't matter. I'm at the point where I don't even daze Chalice of the Void if I'm on the draw. Like it just... It doesn't matter. Like, my hand can be, like, ponder, 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 days, And I am not dazing that <laughs> Chalice of the Void because, like, the cost is just so high of setting yourself back a land drop in uh, Fire Printing Legacy. So we have a whole section called What's the Cost of a Cantrip in our show notes that Brian just hammered straight through to. But right now we're talking about what's the cost of a tutor. And I didn't read the show notes. I'm sorry. Yeah, we know. Uh, you can't read. <laughs> Uh, you can't see right now. You're blacking <laughs> out. We already talked about this. It's happening. So The sickening. <laughs> but it's okay. You're healthy. You just need more sleep. Uh, so Phil's talking about what's the cost of a tutor. Um, and Phil, you're you're kind of the expert on fair tutors, recruiter of the guard at all. Uh, lead us into this conversation. Okay. So when I say fair tutors, I mean things like Green Sun Zenith, Recruiter of the Guard, Living Wish, and things of that nature. And usually when you're casting these, you are getting another fair card off of them. And these usually cost between one and three mana. And in years of Legacy Past, that wasn't that big of a deal. Taking, taking a setup turn is totally fine. But right now, if you play a tutor... It's often really hard to double spell in that turn. And casting this tutor, even if you have a little bit of mana left over, you often can't use it. And so right now these tutors are often setting you back an entire turn cycle in order to cast them. And this can lead into some pretty spooky tempo scenarios for you, where like you, ca you cast a Recruiter of the Guard, you get your important silver bullet, then your opponent force of wills that and oh no 
that was two turns that my opponent just got for their force of will and it's it's devastating yeah the my teferi vacation brew that i i did as a donation list um i i put it into a nickfit shell and i mostly just copied the shell and tweaked it as i wanted but the shell i copied was a living wish deck so i had the living wish package in my teferi vacation deck and it was so bad like i think that was a worse deck building decision than including the teferi vacation combo and that's saying a lot because that combo is jank like the every time i drew living wish i would have preferred a creature out of my sideboard at random like it doesn't even matter which one it is <laughs> like let's just skip this package like uh at the end of the every video, I'm like, okay, this is what I would change about the deck. The first thing I did was just chuck those living wishes straight in the trash because that is not how you can play Legacy right now. Yeah, and like, we should probably start getting into like what you're actually getting off of these cards. So, if you're just getting another fair card off of these cards, a lot of times you would feel so much better just drawing that card in the first place. If you are going and getting Knight of the Reliquary or Thalia off of your tutor, that doesn't feel great, especially when you can't deploy them in the same turn cycle. On the other hand, if that's letting you get Aethersworn Canonist or Collector Oof or something that effectively wins you the game after it gets into play, it's an entirely different story. So winning the game is good, you're saying? Generally speaking. Uh, it's certainly not bad. Yeah, uh, and like the the flexibility of a tutor is of course part of the value. Um, like the idea of playing Green Sun Zenith, so you can uh, cast it for zero on turn one for Dryad Arbor, or cast it for four on turn five for Questing Beasts and anything in between. Like that, that's worth something. Uh, versus like like you can't just play four Questing Beasts. Like that doesn't do the same thing for a deck build, but there is a cost to that. Um, and part of it is that all of those things are going to cost one more. Like the green X on Green Sun Zenith, it, it adds the adds one to the cost of all your creatures in exchange for you get to find the one you want when you want it. And uh, like we were just talking about, like taking the time to cast Prior Day and taking the time to daze something, setting you back in today's legacy, that one extra mana is a big cost. Another big cost is... These tutors are all spells. Uh, I guess Recruiter of the Guard is an exception, but uh, they're for the most part, tutors are non-creature spells, which opens up... You know, like, if you're a creature-heavy deck, like a green, whatever Green Sun Zenith deck you're playing, that's a creature-centric deck, whether it's Maverick or Elves or whatever, uh, the old Bug Zenith uh, special, um, that's mostly a creature deck. And by using Green Sun Zenith, you're turning on the Forest of Negation, the Spell Pierce, the Fluster Storm, the things that can't hit creatures normally. And uh, this is something that uh, I call my uh, soft answer bottleneck theory, which is like, a card with only one target in a matchup will be more potent and hit the important spell more often than in matchups with many targets. So like, if you think about elves and you're playing elves and your opponent has Forest of Negation in their hand, that's a dead card until you want to resolve natural order. And then it's a very good card. Um, this is where the wildfire comes up, Phil, where our Bryant, we're back to wildfire. Uh, yes. There was, there's this uh, individual at one of my local game stores a couple of years ago 
He's mostly retreated to the shadows. He was generally cantankerous, an absolute rager, bad manners at the table. Uh, we don't miss him. But he played this, built a modern wildfire deck where it had all the artifact mana, ramps into a quick wildfire, destroys all your lands, you still have artifact mana, you know, the classic cube deck. But he built it in modern. And the only creature in his deck was Worm Coil Engine. He played three or four of those, and he would lose his shit every time that card got path to exiled. And you could not explain to him that the opponent always has the path to exile because there's no other target. Like, you're not challenging the removal up the curve, and then your big fatty wins at the end. They have four paths in their deck, you have three or four Worm Coil Engines, and it's not going anywhere except at Worm Coil Engine. And that's what I'm talking about here. Like, opening up uh, your your opponent's Force Negations, their Spell Pierces against your Tutor, which is uh, presumably one of your payoffs if you've chosen to play a Tutor, it's probably important. Uh, you're turning on the half of their deck that the your main plan has turned off. So that's a pretty big cost as well. So... As the person here that plays tutors the most often, and I think that's pretty fair to say, Phil, I play eight. Oh, yeah, come on, for come sure. On. And uh, I get asked this a lot, and it's like, you play Burning Wish, why don't you play a big package? I recorded a video last week with Alex McKinley, and we had five Burning Wish targets, with one of them being Thoughtseize that we sometimes board in. And people say, like, well, why don't you run, like, an answer to Deafening Silence? Why don't you run, like, a Biforced answer, uh, you know, Chalice to the Void or whatever? Imagine playing Burning Wish, taking a turn to cast Burning Wish to then get a Biforce. And then you Biforce your opponent's Chalice of the Void and you pass the turn. And now on your turn four, you're going to try to win the game. And they've done nothing else in all this time. Like, what Christmas land are you living in? Where you're going to take two turns off just to answer a chalice. Like, that's not how magic works. Like, I play Pulverize sometimes. Like, recently I haven't been playing it because the chalice decks are kind of gone. But, like, at least with Pulverize, when you cast it, you're winning the same turn. And so if you're going to play cards like that, they have to be really efficient. So when you look at cards like Massacre, not that I recommend playing it because it's just not worthwhile, but Massacre, Reverend Silence, Byforce, they all allow you to capitalize very quickly. Playing clunky cards that you're getting with these tutors is sort of what Phil was saying. Like, you're going to eat a force or they're just going to replay something else because you took so long. Yeah, that that uh, parlays directly into our unfair tutors, which is the next thing we're going to talk about. And I think that Burning Wish in general is going to be considered an unfair tutor, the decks that play it. Um, I have seen some random, like, miracles lists that are, like, Jeskai with Burning Wish and... Like I saw like a Shark Typhoon deck that has one replenish in the sideboard to Burning Wish for, and like you can be cute like that, but those are the fair tutors which we have just discussed are mostly not worth doing uh, compared to just drawing a card that's impactful right away. But the unfair uh, to tutors... pause you to pause you real sec, Brian, you're an OG. Do you remember Burning Tog in Legacy? Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, that was back when you could do stuff like that. Uh, what, <laughs> you, forget about the burning. You could tog back then. Play my Nightscape Familiar on turn two. Turn three, Burning Wish. I'll get Persecute. Oh, man. I'll cast Persecute, naming red against my mono blue opponent. They say it resolves. Then on resolution, I say blue. <laughs> they changed the rules about that, too, by the way. 
Yeah. <laughs> that was the thing you used to be able to do. But uh, trips to, <laughs> down memory lane aside, uh, the unfair tutor is the burning wish, cunning wish, infernal tutor. And Doomsday is, uh, it, it, it may not be on the list of tutors that jumps into your brain, but you're tutoring for five cards and putting them in your deck instead of your hand. So Doomsday is a pretty powerful tutor. Uh, those tend to win the game right away or on the next turn. And the tempo loss doesn't matter as much because the game is over. That's exactly what Brian just said about wishing for Biforce versus wishing for Pulverize. Like, this is a zero mana spell. I'm casting it now. It's clearing the way and you're dead. I don't, I'm not worried about spending two mana, then sacking two lands and ending up down a card all in one turn because there's not going to be another turn. I don't have to recoup that card loss somewhere else. So uh, that's where those unfair tutors... Uh, that's why combo decks get away with that when fair decks generally don't. And then there's the card negative tutors, which Brian talked about a little bit with adding personal tutor to Doomsday. Uh, the card negative tutors are uh, enlightened tutor, personal tutor, mystical, vampiric. Uh, those uh, other tutors replace themselves, like the card goes directly to your hand. These put the card on top of your deck. So you are signing up for card disadvantage. You spent a card that did not create a card. It created an opportunity to do something powerful. And you need to be able to pay off on that. So uh, Brian's talking about cutting Preordain from Doomsday for four personal tutor. That's betting that I'm going to win this game on turn two or turn three. The turn after I personal tutor, I'm going to win because I've just lost a card. And uh, I need to re I need to end the game before that card matters. And in Vintage, there's, I, I was in a lot of conversations about how to build Paradoxical Outcome a couple years ago. This is before Bolas of Citadel was printed, because now you obviously just play Tinker and get Bolas of Citadel in your PO deck. But there was a time when you could build it as more of a control deck with a combo kill or a combo deck with some controlling elements. And uh, I was a big fan of, uh, I only played Demonic Tutor. And uh, in my PO deck to, to actually search, in general, I was just drawing cards and doing control deck things. And then uh, Stephen Menendian, he was doing things like uh, Vampiric Tutor and Mystical Tutor for Tinker. Uh, and Tinker is the type of card that you can spew resources into getting it to resolve. So you play your Vampiric Tutor, you're down a card. You cast your Tinker, sack an artifact, you're down another card. But that's the kind of power level where you can spend three cards because you're going to win the game if it resolves. Uh, versus, like, if you don't have a Tinker win, then you don't want to play Vampiric Tutor because it's just card disadvantage in your control deck. So uh, that's that's another important thing to think about. Uh, the most controversial one is Enlightened Tutor because you can see how a Mystical or Vampiric Tutor would win the game on the spot. They're both banned in Legacy for a reason. But Enlightened Tutor is still around. And I, I've i been playing Shark still a lot. Uh, that's a deck that plays Shark Typhoon. It plays Standstill. It plays Courts of Cunning and Grace. A lot of artifacts and enchantments in those lists. I, I board into Deafening Silence and Nalrod. You're welcome, Bryant. Those are for you. And every time, every single time in the comments on those videos, someone's like, what about adding Enlightened Tutor? You play so many things, you could find your bullets. And it's like, I would rather just draw a card. Uh, these are not decks that can afford to do that. Uh, basically, the only time you can afford to do that um, is if you're like 
wishing for moat against goblins or elves or something like uh it has to be something moat level it has to be something they can't reasonably answer and it has to win the game on the spot like you're not gonna be happy about wishing for court of grace and becoming the monarch and then like slowly recouping those cards uh like you want the game to end uh enlightened tutor for helm of obedience when you already have rest and peace in play that's a worthwhile play but in general you can't just be adding enlightened tutors to your blue white control decks so this is a brainstorming idea that i honestly thought of last week uh but it's sort of pertinent to this uh episode it originally uh, came to my mind because i was like what would the mana cost on golden wish have to be for that card to be playable but not just golden wish like the non-burning wish wishes like cunning wish sees fringe play but what would the actual cost on those cards need to be in order for them to be competitive again? What is Golden Wish? Three white white get an artifact or enchantment from out of the game. It seems crazy to me, but also totally in line with the way cards were designed in the earlier days of Magic. That wishing for an artifact or enchantment costs five, but a sorcery costs two. <laughs> like, what the fuck, wizards? Uh, and And that's... That's not even the old, old days. That's like, I guess that's not really the midpoint of magic anymore. Uh, it, it's slightly it's past middle school. Yeah, it, it's firmly middle school. It's not alpha beta. Like it, it was in like reasonably close to the modern card frame that those cards were printed. And they were still like, eh, sorceries are fine. But artifacts and enchantments are watch out for those. Well, going back to your point about like land destruction, I felt like Red lost part of its identity when they were just like, people decided blowing up their lands wasn't fun anymore. Like, who cares? I don't like my spells getting countered either. You're not going to quit running counter spells. Like, well, they did the same thing to counter spells that they did to stone rains. They made them cost three. Like stone rains cost four now. Counter spells cost three now. Isn't cancel in every single set? Like almost every set has the card literal cancel in it. Plus some variant at rare. Like counter spells just cost three now. And they did the same thing that they did to red. I don't like that Dark Ritual costs one. Yeah, well, you get to draw three Yeah, I know. Fingers. It gets countered by my Chalice of the Void when I put them in the same deck. It's, it's fucking awful. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so like I was thinking about that and I was like, I just can't imagine what the mana cost on Golden Wish would have to be. If it was white, white, would it be playable? I don't think so. And Dude, white, white cards are hard as fuck to cast. <laughs> yeah, it, but, that's harder than white too in a lot of situations. Yep. I don't know. That was just something I thought of. So just kind of like capping off this section here, I want you to keep in mind that like when we're talking about these tutors, a lot of times we're talking about a one or two mana investment and we're all like, ah. so if that tells you a little bit about where legacy is at right now in terms of like board impact and acting, uh, I, I I don't know. I lost the where that sentence was going, but impacting the board quickly matters. TLDR. Yes, definitely true. Uh, which brings us into our next section, which Bryant already started, which was, what is the cost of a cantrip? Uh, and this is partially inspired by Rich Callie's recent article on Channel Fireball, uh, where he it's called Updating Heuristics. And uh, he challenges some classic heuristics of legacy play. Uh, like one of them is the uh, the best brainstorm is the one you don't cast, uh, or 
like holding on to your brainstorms as long as possible. And his counter heuristic is I'd hate to lose with brainstorm in my hand. And that's kind of, uh, I mean, I see what he's coming from. Uh, on the, the, the corollary to that is uh, I love winning with brainstorm in my hand. <laughs> like if you don't need it, save it. But basically what he was trying to get at is uh, he was challenging the idea that you always want to main phase your brainstorm. You always want to fetch land. Uh, he basically was like, if your hand has Dreadhorde Arcanist, but not the second land, or you have the second land, but not the Dreadhorde Arcanist, maybe you want to cast that end step brainstorm at the end of your opponent's first turn to maximize your chance of doing something powerful on turn two. Like, forget the shuffle. Dreadhorde Arcanist is going to be more powerful than shuffling those dead cards away. And uh, that that's definitely in line with what we've been saying. Also, there's no written rule book about the order in which you should cast your cantrips. I've done tutoring sessions with people where they're like, no, you preordain, then you ponder, then you brainstorm. That's not how magic works. Like, there are no, like, definite rules. And it's really context dependent, so please don't fall into those traps. Yeah, uh, I I did an entire, uh, like, 15-minute video on what or what the different cantrips do compared to each other and why you might want to cast one but not the other. Uh, like... Like we see in Legacy, Brainstorm is a four of and Preordain is between like zero and two most of the time. It, and But in a Popper deck that doesn't have the fetch lands, you see four Preordain and one or two Brainstorm in the blue decks. So it's just like what's available in the format to make the cantrips good. And uh, that that's always important to know. Um, in general, I think that the, the Brainstorm heuristics, I still think that if somebody were to come to me and they're like, hey, I just started playing Legacy, what do I need to know? I would lean towards uh, Brainstorm. The best Brainstorm is the one you don't cast, more than I'd hate to lose with Brainstorm in my hand. Though, I I, I would definitely hate to lose with Brainstorm in my hand, don't get me wrong. But I also love winning with Brainstorm in hand. So that it's complicated. Uh, his other... Uh, heuristic here before oh, we before we go, go to that can i just say something because i think this is a, a great point what we're doing right now is talking about an established heuristic and heuristics are general rules of thumb and learning the heuristic is how you start to get better and learning when that heuristic doesn't apply and when you should break it and deviate from it is kind of the point of of mastery I've never, going back to the, I'd hate to lose with Brainstorm in my hand. I don't think I've ever died and gone like, oh, if only I had the, the Gohones to cast that Brainstorm. Like, that's never something that's crossed my mind. I'm like, oh, maybe I should have been more uh, aggressive on this turn, or maybe I should have done this. But I question, like, a series of plays. It's just never like, oh, cast Brainstorm at the wrong time. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think we might be getting lost in the exact language of this uh, proposed heuristic. Uh, I we know that Rich is smart. He knows what he's talking about. And uh, I, I think it is uh, bold and smart to challenge those sort of established rules. Um, and like for the longest time, you board out force of will in fair matchups. Uh, I've talked about this before on this cast. And like uh, there, there was a long period of time in Legacy where like if I played against Death and Taxes, I just cut all of my Force of Wills. They were the first thing to go. Don't even think about it. They're gone. But get Cataclysm, fool. Right. And then Cataclysm and Gideon started happening to the people who were boarding out their 
uh, all their force of wills. Uh, I, I think I've told this story before. Sorry, listeners, but uh, I played against a friend. The, I, I tried death and taxes for two events, and I played against a friend on Rugdalber in one of those events. And in our game three, he force of willed three of my spells. And I was like, you left those in? And he was like, obviously, I would have died if those spells resolved. And that just like, uh, he he went against the common knowledge, the, the heuristic, and he won because of it. And now in modern days, these powerful cards, the Dreadhorde Arcanus, the Oko, uh, those things, you gotta force them. <laughs> uh, you don't get to cut down to zero force of will in fair matchups anymore. And uh, like challenging the heuristics, heuristics do change over time, printings change. And uh, the idea that like Bryant, as a combo player, I'm sure you know all about the like end step brainstorm because I'm just missing one high likelihood to hit thing. Like I see three cards, uh, I have three looks at a, a 20 outer or whatever. It, and if I hit, I win. But if I go to my turn, then it becomes a, a seven outer or whatever. Like, I, I don't know. Those are all I made up all those numbers. But you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Combo's been doing this all along. But the idea that a fair deck maybe should be pushing uh, its opportunity to cast a powerful card earlier rather than maximize a brainstorm in the traditional sense uh, is a, a bold one to say out loud. So I know that this session isn't about heuristics and it's about the cost of a cantrip, but some players like general rules. Like someone today, I recently made an Epic Swarm subreddit. They were like, when do I cast uh, Echo of the Echo of the Aeons? Can't talk tonight. But when do I cast Echo of the Aeons? And I was like, there's no real answer. Like it's all context dependent. And they, they just asked, they're like, I just want a heuristic. But that's not what I do. Like I'm not going to tell you, well, you only cast it when you're about to die because that's not true. And it's just like strange that some people live in these worlds to me where they like play magic based on these things that other people have told them. Uh, I re- one of the Underworld uh, outcome videos that I recorded, I was like, this time lock card does literally nothing in my deck. I don't play creatures. It's a glorified explorer. I'm cutting it. And I talk about why in more in detail. But I was sort of expecting somebody to be like, you know, you're you're an idiot. Like, I can't believe you're cutting time lock. And the reaction was just like, yeah, time lock makes no sense in vintage anymore. Which is just like not what I was expecting at all. Yeah, like that's the difference between like a strong or a medium player. Uh, like figuring, like breaking, knowing that the heuristics aren't rules and figuring out how to break them uh, or when to step out of the heuristic is a huge level up for players. Uh, like learning that there are heuristics and what they are is a level up from like the kitchen table to FNM. But then when you go from FNM to like a, a Star City top eight, uh, that person broke some rules. That person was not reading a sideboard guide. Uh, the sideboard guide might be sort of a, it, it's not really a heuristic in the traditional sense, but it's sort of like a written guide of, uh, like when I look at a sideboard guide, I'm not like, oh, okay, Bryant cuts the ponders for the for this in this matchup. Uh, it, it, and that's right. I'm thinking he does this, and that tells me what he thinks about the matchup in that there's not going to be time to ponder in this matchup, which tells me what he thinks is important. So now I can play the way he would play. Like, that's what I get out of a sideboard guide. If you're like uh, subscribing to people's Patreons and buying sideboard guides and just copying them straight up, uh, like play, draw, doesn't matter. Like just doing exactly what they said. You're not getting the full value out of your purchase. 
And uh, I, I do think sideboard guides are valuable. I do appreciate them a lot for a new deck because it helped me get inside the head of the deck's designer. But I'm not following that perfectly. And neither should you uh, if you're looking to level up. I don't even follow my own sideboard guides a good portion of the time because like you learn things in match and it's like, oh, they're playing this fringe option. That means my usual boarding plan isn't really good because if I board like I normally do, I don't have outs to this stupid enchantment. I need to bring in Council's Judgment, which otherwise doesn't really have good targets. Yeah, I in recording uh, Deep Analysis this week, uh, I talked to Jarvis uh, like probably five years ago at this point. He was... He tried to help me learn to play Red Green Lands. This was the season that Jarvis got first, fifth, ninth, and tenth in four consecutive Legacy Grand Prix with lands, which is like pretty insane. Uh, he made Gold Pro that year, basically as a Legacy Pro, so it's a pretty huge accomplishment. And I was, at, and he did put some time. He was answering my questions, but I did, I was looking for those easy heuristics of like someone who has never played this deck before. I'm coming from Elves. I'm coming from Delver. This is totally different. How do you like sideboard here? And he'd be like, well, on the play, I do this. On the draw, I do this. But if you see this, you have to do this. If you see this, but they play it like this, you have to do it this way. And I, I'm just like, nope, I, I don't. I, I'm i not going to put in the work to learn this deck. Uh, and it, it is. And during that period of time, like uh, Jarvis, Dave Long, Kevin King, there were just a number of people who were in the top eight of every Star City event and every Grand Prix because they were masters with lands and it was a hard deck. They, and you couldn't heuristic your way into that deck. Like you can heuristic with Delver, you can heuristic with Miracles, but there are no lands heuristics. It's it's all understanding context fluidly and uh, it gets rewarded if you're willing to put in the work, but most people aren't, myself included. So, uh, Rich's other thing, uh, this is this is contrary to the always mainstay, main phase of Brainstorm. It was executing a game plan proactively is the most effective strategy in many cases. And this is the number one thing, the number one feedback I give in my donation leagues, because I get some wild brews. Uh, sometimes people just have like, they just want to see me play a good deck or they send me a deck that's mostly tuned and that's cool. But sometimes they send a wild brew. And it is really hard to assemble contraptions in modern and legacy and vintage versus just executing a good game plan. Uh, like I, I recorded a video. Uh, it's probably going to come out the same day as this cast does. Uh, a, a local guy, Franklin, he's a brewer. Uh, he's a bro. And he sent me eggs, modern eggs. Remember that deck? It won a pro tour, then they banned it. But he, he sent me an updated eggs list. Uh, it killed with Bitter Ordeal. Uh, it was a Gravestorm deck. It was a well-conceived deck. All the pieces made sense. Everything worked toward the same goal. And the league did not go well because if you stumble a little bit, you lose. You don't impact the board until you're comboing. You're going to lose. Uh, you're susceptible to basically everything like uh, a deck like eggs graveyard hate artifact hate counter spells discard spells it all collapses your plan you lose to anyone who's doing anything powerful and proactive and also it was just like half a turn to a turn slower than the format even with no disruption a prowess deck could just kill you before you combo and 
you can work so hard to build this cool shell and it, it's just not as good as curving like you know ponder dreadhorde arcanist oko or whatever and or you know, mother of runes thalia sanctum prelate like whatever your curve is uh it it's going to be better than the person who's joking around over there especially if your list is untuned i played a red black pox league recently and it was really a three color deck because there were four wastelands and four mishra's factories in there and it was also trying to cast croxa and there were so many times where i just stumbled over myself because i didn't have the correct mana combination for turn two or turn three and i fell behind on tempo and could never ever recover like being proactive, stay, staying on curve, making plays that matter. It's so important right now. So I was talking to someone this week and they were saying like, maybe I'll go back to playing a different deck every week. That way I get Brewer's advantage. Uh, they tend to play a lot of piles. And I said, you know, you also like you do get the Brewer's advantage, but you also have a negative advantage, uh, you know, a loss when you play unrefined decks. Because you're you like your opponent might not know exactly what you're doing, but if they have a pulse, they'll probably be able to figure out what ballpark you're in, and like and then from there they can like start to figure stuff out, and then like you know like oh they had cavern, but they named giant like what are what giants are they playing? They played an island. What creature type is Uro? Like that sort of thing. Like they'll be able to eventually piece out the puzzle what you're eventually trying to do, but. Your decks, when you're just like, I'm going to play this random stuff, they're often not as good because you don't have like months and years and whatever refining it, making all these decisions perfect as well. And I think that sometimes people just overrate Brewer's Advantage, which kind of falls into these donation decks that we're talking about. Uh, I had a conversation like that with Steve Rubin, uh, you know, three time Platinum Pro, Steve Rubin. He, uh, we were leaving Grand Prix Louisville in probably 2016, 15. I don't know. It was a standard GP. I think Jody Keith won it. But Steve Rubin played Mono White in that Grand Prix, which was not a deck in the standard metagame at all. He basically made it up the morning before we left for the Grand Prix. He was still tuning it in the car when we got there. And he put up a mediocre result. I think he day two'd but didn't cash. And then in the car on the way home, he was just sort of like, oh, I don't know, that was weird. I feel like my deck was pretty well positioned and nobody knew what I was doing. And I was like, well, you didn't know what you were doing either. Like, <laughs> it, if you put in the work, like if you put in two weeks of like Moto Leagues, really got your sideboard figured out, got everything tuned, you know exactly what you need to do in your matchups, then you have Brewer's Advantage. Like if you show up and your opponent's reacting to you on the fly, but you're reacting to them on the fly too, you both have disadvantage against the brew, but they have a better tuned deck. And uh, though uh, that conversation was never spoke of again, Steve Rubin became a platinum pro the next year by playing better decks and tuning them well. So I'm going to take credit for that. But <laughs> uh, but he he did go from like memeing with his own piles to like really putting in the work. Uh, he built the Abzan deck that Ari Lax won the Pro Tour with. He built the green-white tokens deck that he won his Pro Tour with, and uh, he just got serious about his brews and put in the work, and uh, he was rewarded for it 
once he started putting in the work. But ch- ch- playing a random shit deck is not Brewer's advantage. That's just playing a random shit deck. Yeah, if you're if you're trying to get the Brewer's advantage, your advantage has to be so good that you're saying, I know more than the hive mind that is working on Rug Delver knows. And this is where I want to be. Like, you have to have some real confidence if you want to be playing a, a brew, a, a fringe strategy. You, you need to know your stuff. Because there's so many people out there working on Rug Delver or Snow or anything of that nature. So, uh, believe it or not, the title of this section is called The Cost of a Cantrip. So, we should probably head back to those. So, we talked about the cost of playing tutors and taking time off. Uh, to cast things like Golden Wish, obviously, you know, premium legacy spell. But I touched on it earlier with the time that it takes to cost to cast a cantrip like Preordain and it not actually being impactful. And it's just another card in the chain when you're casting another Ponder or Brainstormer, whatever. So, Brian, you're out of the three of us, you're the most likely to cast uh, additional cantrips. Why don't you chime in? Yeah, so the... It, it it's really hard like we've been talking about like i don't want to say any like heuristics because we're currently crapping on the idea of heuristics um but like i want to get every drop out of every cantrip most of the time like i people who watch my stuff they hear me say it all the time like this hand has island ponder that's the notcher i'm gonna keep like, doesn't matter what deck I'm playing, doesn't matter what the other five cards in the hands are. If it has basic island ponder, I'm keeping that hand almost all the time. And, but then I usually don't cast that ponder, which is like the the part that freaks people out. I'm usually just like island go. And because the, the draw step for my turn, if I just spike the land, then I get to save my ponder for later. And if I don't hit the land, I'm a card deeper looking for it. So like, there's and sometimes i just like miss my land drop i look at five cards like draw for turn ponder shuffle draw for ponder uh, those five cards aren't the land and then i lose but i think enough times uh, i've been paid off for that that i keep doing it and I, I think that a lot of people would like panic and ponder right away and just like the figuring out how to cantrip in a way like especially tying it back to uh rich's uh like end set brainstorm might be fine theory uh, is like maybe i should ponder turn one more often i don't know uh like that's it, it, it's just you have to get into those situations and and feel the reps and like really understand like how these cards work before you like are really able to to make them dance I played a sneak and show league today. Um, well, I guess you can call it sneak and show, but it had Hull Breachers and Days Undoings in there as well. And there were a couple of games where like I lost or a few turns later, I'm like, huh, maybe four turns ago, I should have cast that cantrip instead, or maybe I should have held this. I didn't think about this weird thing happening that was going to make me want to have a cantrip in hand. Like cantrips are complicated. Having access to them is one of the best ways to increase your consistency in Legacy. And uh, the Everyday Eternal podcast from a couple weeks ago 
uh, where they had, uh, was it, is Pemin is his handle? Uh, yeah, uh, Mark um, Yeah. Um, he was, he was on the show, and I, I forget who was saying it, might, it might have been him or it might have been Callum, uh, but they were saying one of the best things you can do to increase your consistency in Legacy is have access to cantrips and have access to Force of Will, because, like, they let you be more consistent. So I don't want people to think like we're super down on cantrips and you should be cutting them from your legacy decks because like they are awesome and they have huge amounts of value. But like I hope we're showing that there is way more thought to these than like meets the surface when you first take a quick look at them, even if you've been playing legacy for years. So up until 2019 and 2020, when you used to read MTG The Source or Oh, or, oh the olden days, the subreddit before then. You'd see people going like, it doesn't matter, brainstorm, ponder, preordain, everything's the same, every game, and like, every blue deck played those, but then like, Miracles added Predict, and that really pushed it over the top for a little while, and then AK came, and it got to a point where Miracles was mostly air. They played like 20 cantrips, and decks started going super low to the ground to beat Miracles because the deck was all air, and at some point you do hit diminishing returns, but... We're in a different era now where I think going down on cantrips is actually the in a, the first time in a very long time it's correct. I'm, I'm not trying to say ponder and brainstorm suck. I'm trying to say that maybe preordain isn't the card you want to be playing and maybe you don't want to be playing predict because having air in your deck right now comes at a cost. Yeah, like uh, when I play my my shark still, my blue white decks, my court still, like my whatever it is, like the decks that people uh, tend to associate me with. Uh, I the games I lose are because my answers don't line up with their questions or because I've answered their questions but can't ask one of my own quick enough and like the the idea of choosing to like try to manipulate ponder brainstorm swords to plowshares uh, force of will counterspell Dovin's veto into a point where like the board is clear and you know it'll stay clear and you're going to resolve your four mana court of grace. It's a lot to ask. Like uh, I, I know that I'm choosing to play on hard mode. It would be so much easier to just like, uh, Oko Uro people, and, uh, like I, I'm choosing to do that, uh, for my own personal reasons. And if there was a Grand Prix tomorrow, I would just play Rug Delver. <laughs> like honestly, so uh, keep that in mind when you see people trying to do other things. Uh, like there, there is a, a real cost to, uh, sticking with your deck or trying to commit to the cantrip life, uh, when like it, the, the power of a cantrip is that it doesn't cost a card. Like that's what cantrip means. Uh, it, a cantrip is a spell in Dungeons and Dragons that doesn't use a spell slot. Like that's where that word comes from. And like Dreadhorde Arcanist adds to your spell slots <laughs> like if that thing sticks around it's a cantrip as well as a monster and the second turn it's around it's actual card advantage beyond the cantrip Aro is a cantrip oko generates card advantage like the it's not like uh selecting cards uh to find like the perfect surgical thing is the way legacy is played anymore it, it's it's who resolves their hammer and sticks it the hardest and Preordain might not be part of that equation. Love Haymaker Magic. Yeah, that's a uh, but 
sorry, Phil, one quick thing. Brian, I love when you just ran like ran off a bunch of like silly control deck names. In the future, when you do this, can you start like putting in like one or two fake ones, like an alligator's tumble or like <laughs> just something like see if anyone catches on. Like it would just make me happy. And I can try. Uh, I actually got to sneak in on uh, on uh, Tom Hep on Negator during when we were recording Deep Analysis. I was like, so what what are the bad matchups for Depths? And he's like, the the cards I'm worried about are Caracas, Wasteland, and Swords to Plowshares. So decks like Death and Taxes and Maverick that play all three of them are a problem. And I was like, you didn't mention Shark still. <laughs> My deck plays all three of those. <laughs> so... Uh, I, I am looking for opportunities to inject shark still into all situations, but now I'm going to have to find excuses to uh, say like, I don't know, uh, blue dinos or whatever. God, why did you mention that? I So I got a donation for a blue green dino stompy deck featuring Oko and Brazen Borrower and... I love playing Shifting Ceratops. It's a card that is just fun to play. But I, I need to sit down and give that deck list some lug, love. Because I feel like right now, it's in that like close but no cigar range where I'm going to trip over myself just a little bit too much and die. So I'm, I'm hoping to get that to uh, a slightly better performance state before I record with it. God, I love Shifting Ceratops. I played in Pioneer. All right. So uh, something I wanted to say a minute ago, um, going off of like Brian's like hammer point, there used to be a time when the hammers that Legacy had to offer weren't that good. Like when a hammer hit play, it was Tarmoglyph and you were getting clocked for four a turn. And that was scary, but you had time to spin the wheels for one or two turns without it being like, this is game over. And in a deck like Death and Taxes, you know, you might face something like Mirren Crusader, which similarly was also like four damage a turn. Now you're facing down a Dreadhorde Arcanist, which is just like cantripping, and it just buries you in cards so, so quickly. And while the life totals might be changing a little bit slower, the realistic impact that it has on the game is so much higher. Yeah, this this is it's the Bane Drifters. I, I feel like a broken record. I talk about Bane Drifters so much, and if you haven't listened to any of my content for the last two months, where I mention them every week on every video, uh, <laughs> like Bane Slayer Angel is like the Tarmogoy for the Mirror Crusader that Phil was just talking about. Like, if your opponent resolves Bane Slayer Angel with you at twenty, you don't have the answer right away. It gets in three times before you draw the Doom Blade. You're at five. You kill it. You're at five. You got room to breathe. Muldrifter, on the other hand, like it resolves. Your opponent draws two cards, but it's just a 2-2. Two -two. You got a lot of time to deal with that thing if you're even going to deal with it at all. The damage was the cards it drew more than the 2-2 two -two body. But Oko and Dreadhorde Arcanist and Uro, they're Bane Drifters. They do both. Like your life total is under meaningful pressure while your opponent is pulling ahead on card advantage. And those are that's the fire printing. That's what people are complaining about. Like Wizards of the Coast printing for... Kind of to the lowest common denominator. I, I I feel a little disingenuous saying it that way, but it's like they focus grouped people who played Magic for the first time and were like, what do you think we could do better? Uh, rather than like, how how can we make the game better to uh, like invested players, even invested casual players? Like 
someone who has like 15 years of commander experience under their belt. Like I would trust that person. Like, I, I don't think they're excited. Like I follow uh, like Pleasant Kenobi and uh, Tolarian Community College and uh, Mana Curves and like all of these mostly commander centric uh, content creators. And they're not all super excited about these bananas commander cards either. So why are we getting them in Legacy too and Standard? Like I, I, I frequently forget that Oka was just released into Standard. That's not even a Modern Horizons card, like or a Commander card. That was just <laughs> you can buy that in packs on the shelf. So like the, I think I hope that Wizards realized this is not great for Magic, and the original Bane Drifters are Planeswalkers. Like this started in Lorwyn. And uh, I know that some big names, like uh, including John Finkel, just thinks that Planeswalkers are just inherently bad for Magic and should never have existed as a card type. So I don't know where we can go with that because Magic's brand is inherently linked to the Planeswalker adventures at this point. Like we're getting a Netflix show, like all of this stuff is planned. Uh, we just had our Avengers Endgame in War of the Spark. Uh with all the Planeswalkers showing up together. Uh, I don't think Planeswalkers are going anywhere, but I really hope that just random cards stop also being Planeswalkers. I would like one mana answers to Planeswalkers. Okay, thanks, bye. Well, they've started that, but they're conditional. Blood Chief's Thirst, you, I mean, eliminates close. Like, they're starting to do it, but the problem is that in, these cards needed to exist a couple of years ago. And, like, yeah. that's part of the reason why Ren and Six was such a big issue like blood chief's thirst would have been really good to have during that era um i mean ren and six probably would still get banned who knows but it would have been something to help her eliminate like just more options like right now planeswalkers are held to a little too high on the pedestal yeah there's a, a common in kaldheim coming out soon that was uh previewed it's black black two exile target creature or planeswalker instant that was a rare in Ixalan, like Vraska's Contempt. Now it's just a common in this new set. So, wow. so they're clearly like moving in the direction of we need to answer these permanents, and it 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 shouldn't be special. Like it shouldn't be like the Elder Spell. It should just be like Doomblade, but also Planeswalkers. Yeah, but the Elder Spell is fucking sweet. The Elder Spell is the so Elder sweet. Spell is sick. <laughs> I think I've only actually slurped a planeswalker onto my planeswalker like twice, but when that happens, my god, is it nice? So, uh I have a question that I thought of during Brian's control rant, and that is a couple of years ago, virtual card advantage was talked about a lot. That isn't really a thing anymore. Like they're like, yeah, well my counterbalance is going to probably create like three or four cards, and you know, like this other card is worth like this many cards. I feel like that that's gone for the most part other than Oko, which like Oko will create physical cards, not virtual cards, but like, yeah, that's not virtual. Yeah. That's it's in, like not the quite the same thing. Yeah. So like virtual card advantage doesn't seem to exist anymore, or maybe I'm wrong and I'm just like not thinking of other cards that do it, but it seems like Chalice of the Void's gone. That's a virtual card advantage card because it shuts off X number of cards in your opponent's deck. Um, storm decks are inherently creating virtual card advantage by not turning on swords to plowshares, but like swords 
the value of that card's gone down. We're seeing more effects like Abrupt Decay and Oko. So like the virtual card advantage, even from playing no creatures, is starting to diminish. So it's just something that I've thought of for a little while, and it seems appropriate here. Yeah, that used to be one of those things that I would talk about in almost every single video that I recorded back when I was like playing almost exclusively Red Prison and Death and Taxes. Every league, it was virtual card advantage, virtual cards, card advantage, because Mother of Runes is on, Mother of Runes is active, Chalice is in play, Moon is in play, I have so much virtual card advantage. And I cannot think of the last time that I used that phrase in a video. Yeah, so I recorded with the, that aggro mentor deck we mentioned, the Arcanist mentor deck that plays three counterbalance, and counterbalance was big pile of garbage because your deck, other than its cantrips, can't manipulate the top of the deck. Um, I also had three counterbalance in the Aminatu Yorion Miracles deck, and counterbalance was actually like pretty okay there because one of Aminatu's abilities is draw a card, put a card from your hand on top. So you actually do have sort of a repeatable top of the deck manipulation but it still didn't feel good i i I boarded it out a lot it's like game one counterbalance i feel pretty good if it counters two or three spells but then like they're gonna have red blast they're gonna have abrupt decay they have like cavern of souls like this this card's just getting cut and you you need your counter you need your card advantage to not be virtual you need it to be tangible these days for both Chalice and Counterbalance, we saw the same thing happened where due to 2019 and 2020 power creep, decks got real mana curves. They just weren't one casting cost spells anymore. So I feel like that's an unspoken thing about those cards where like people are like, yeah, I want to play three mana cards. And like that didn't happen a couple of years ago. People are like, oh, I guess I'll play Council's Judgment. Maybe instead I'll play two engineered explosives. Like that's just like no, like no one wanted to play you know, Monastery Mentor in the main, other than Brian and Wilson, but... It was just me. And the the listeners obviously can't see it, but the uh, number of plaques and trophies behind me indicate <laughs> that it was a good idea. But, uh, like, Phil sent recorded a, a deck, uh, a Niv-Mizzet list this week, and he showed me the list before I recorded, and I called it Three Drop Tribal in the chat, and... It basically was. It was just like Uro, Oko, Teferi, uh, just all of these three drops. And I I call it three drop tribal not to make fun of it, because starting at War of the Spark, three drop tribal was like kind of the new legacy. Uh, we hadn't quite figured out Dreadheart Arcanist yet. Uh, Justin Frank showed up at SCG Con that year and did well in both legacy and vintage. I think he top aided both with Dreadhorde Arcanist before anyone else was really playing it. But at that event, I was playing Teferi, Narset, Monastery Mentor. Like, I was on 3-drop Tribal. And I also top 16 both those events, and it felt really good. Just who resolves the most 3-drops is going to win the game in Legacy. Which, in Legacy, that should be true. Like, whoever, if you resolve two 3-drops, you probably should win a Legacy game, given the card pool. But the fact that we are, like, skewing up into like felidar retreat and uh uro is a a four mana spell on the half that really counts so that's it, it it's a more expensive format and there's bangers the whole way up the curve how much of that do you think is that blue decks are more insulated from things going wrong in the early game due to having more copies of force of will because previously oh, yeah, that definitely yeah, yeah. 
Okay. Like, uh, I've said various versions of this before, but like, if force of negation didn't exist, uh, it would be easier to challenge the the tap out nature of blue decks. If Dreadhorde Arcanus didn't exist to recoup the card advantage, a deck like Rugdell or probably couldn't afford to play six or seven forces. Like, uh, you can't eat too many Hymdatorox before you're just out of gas, unless you've resolved some repeatable Bane Drifter type action in Dreadhorde Arcana Store Oko or Sylvan Library. Like, so the return of Sylvan Library, that card's been legal as long as Legacy has existed. And it's like seeing some play as like a one or two of in like Maverick or whatever. But the fact that control decks are playing up to three copies of it now. Honorog's even played four in the main deck. Uh, and like the fact that that card is just here now, uh, here to stay, is a sign that uh, we need to recoup the cards we're pitching to all our forces. I also think part of that also... criminal life game just tacked onto everything now. It's like, hey, you you know, your Night Swister should probably gain three life now if it's going to be playable. Like, why does everything just have life gain tacked onto it? Yep, the... Uh... Uh, it it's the I that question was probably rhetorical, but the answer is fire printing. Like we wa- we want the casual pack purchaser to be only happy with their purchase. Uh, we want them to open a card like Oko. That's like man, I hate Chalice of the Void. It's an elk. Man, I hate burn. Gain three life. Like just that sort of thing. Uh, they it. Like Richard Shea, uh, the Atog Lord, has been on a rant about this. Well, before he quit magic due to magic being racist, he uh, w- would constantly rant about how things aren't symmetrical anymore. Like uh, a-, a card that's like uh, Karn the Great Creator. If it was printed in 2010, it would have said artifacts can't be activated. Yes. Not your opponent's artifacts. Rich Teferi <laughs> would have been symmetrical. And like and like it makes it would make sense on the war of the spark planeswalkers if they just were symmetrical like the way the cards are designed like if Teferi's static was symmetrical nobody can cast instance but his plus was you can cast instance now like that would make sense he's on your team he's doing a little work to like let you through his defensive magic uh Narset Parter avails if she said nobody can draw extra cards, but you can impulse twice, you continue gaining card advantage, even though players can't draw cards. Like, it makes sense. They were so close, and then they were just one-sided for some reason. We talked about that a few episodes ago with the hate bear printings, how they're all uh, non-symmetrical now as well. Yeah, like Lavinia being a tool that Paradoxical Outcome gets to use against the Force of Will decks, which are also playing Lavinia against the Paradoxical Outcome decks, is so goofy. Uh, I actually recorded a Popper League this week with Goblin Storm featuring Brightstone Ritual, and I actually got paired against Goblins in the League, and Brightstone Ritual makes a red for each Goblin in play. So, like, (laughs) yeah. So it had been a long time since I, like, I had plenty of situations where like my opponent died to an extra damage off true name nemesis because they had lord of atlantis like in old legacy but that just doesn't happen anymore like uh the uh the new lord of atlantis whatever that card master of the pearl trident is that yeah yeah it's it's the same card but not symmetrical and that's just how cards are printed now the closest thing in like the modern era of magic that actually sees plays probably actually in historic with gem palm recruiter 
or gem palm uh, incinerator i'm sorry i said recruiter oh yeah yeah uh, because that's an old card that just got reprinted uh, if they design that today it would not count their goblins all right we're on a boomer rant we are deep into a legacy boomer rant right now uh do we have anything else to say about uh the cost of casting cantrips or tutors uh the cost of card selection or do we want to just tell people to register dreadhorde arcanist oko and uro until they they ban some number of them well yeah i mean obviously we've been telling people that for a while off and on but they probably get that so let's let's end on a new nugget i thought we were on a good tangent rant there i was really enjoying myself yeah but i'm fine to rein it in we are approaching the uh hour and 52 minutes mark it's right about that time where we should put a pin in this and some of us have to be up for work in the morning for the first time in two months enjoy waking up at five brian uh, I won't, but thank you. Here, Here's your closing nugget. So if if you are a deck builder or a deck tuner, give tempo in regards to cantripping and tutoring and your curve a little bit more thought than you've been giving it previously. Because the legacy of this year is very different from the legacy of last year, which is very different from the 10 years that preceded it or whatever, however long legacy has been around for. And things are constantly changing and you need to be adapting. You need to be thinking about your heuristics and your deck building. If you want to keep up and you want to be at the absolute cutting edge of the format. What's tempo? It's card advantage. (laughs) Fuck, cut off the recording. (laughs) Cut off the recording. (laughs) Otherwise it's just like a giant, giant tangent.